I'm AC Brown, and you're listening to Is My Aura On Straight, a podcast designed to help you start living from your core instead of your conditioning. Each week, we'll have deep conversations that will help you create a powerful transformation that shifts your perspective in life, love, and business with topics ranging from spiritual self-development, human design, astrology, metaphysics, and everything in between. This episode is sponsored by The School of Betty. The School of Betty is a platform that empowers women plus through transformational money healing to create better relationships with their money, time, and energy so they can lessen stress, build financial freedom, and design a badass life they love. Hello, 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 and welcome to another episode of Is My Aura On Straight? I am your host, AC Brown. I am your psychic channel, spiritual guide, and teacher. And I want to thank you so much for joining me for another episode of Is My Aura On Street. Today is a very, very special episode. It's not just a dream episode for me, but I think for the human design community. I have the one and only Karen Curry Parker here. Welcome, Karen. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you, AC. I feel like I should be the one saying it's a really special episode and I get to be here with the one and only AC Brown. So it's a win all the way around, I think. Thank you so much. We've talked about things on other kind of behind the scenes stuff, but I think that it's really cool that you have continuously been very, very clear in your messaging and in your practice and in your business when it comes to human design. And you have had a strong hold on educating us, giving us human design information. And I admired that about you. And my first question for you would be, because I don't know this, is how did you discover human design? Oh, that's a cool story. And I would say I didn't discover human design. I'd say really it more discovered me. So the story starts in 1999, which is a, a long time ago. And At the time, I was a stay-at-home, homeschooling, kind of soccer mom with four small kids in the suburbs of Houston, Texas. And my husband at the time went on a spiritual retreat to Sedona, Arizona, and he came back from Sedona with a human design chart. And he handed me the chart, his chart, and I saw it and I just started to cry and I don't know why I cried, you know, it's just, it was like, I, I knew inside of me just in this bone deep, soul deep way that I had to learn everything I could about human design. And so we literally within two weeks, put the house on the market, loaded up the kids in the van, sold the house, moved across the country to Sedona, Arizona. And as soon as we got there, my youngest son had an ear infection. So I took this kid to the pediatrician. I came out of the pediatrician's office with this little three-year-old guy on my hip. 
Across the hallway was a door and on the door was the human design symbol. So I thought, well, I'm just going to go in here. <laughs> so I opened the door and there was this desk and this little woman sitting behind the desk. And she looked up at me and she said, oh, did you come for the job? And I said, yes, I did. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> she hired me there on the spot. So that was the international headquarters for human design. The woman behind the desk was Marianne Winokur, who, if, if you know anything about human design, is one of the matriarchs in the human design community. I have the privilege and the honor of working with her and studying personally with Ra for several years. And that started my journey with human design. Wow. I did not know you picked up everything and you just went and said, here I am. <laughs> it, it's, it's what it does. It's what that mighty triangle does to me. It makes me do things. <laughs> so. Well, that's good though. I mean, I think that's similar to my story with, I was just in disbelief about being a projector. That was a very heartbreaking moment. <laughs> so people who follow my podcast know that that was a very sad time for me because both of my parents are generators. So I'm like, I don't wait for anything. What do they mean? So that's another, <laughs> that's another story. So you get there, you're doing work in the human design office. And what then inspires you to say this is amazing and not crazy because that's, I think that's where people oh, kind yeah. of come in in the beginning, like what the hell is this? But then also like, <laughs> this is life-changing. So what was that moment for you? Oh my gosh. Okay. So that, that is also a kind of a complex thing. So before human design found me, I actually was one of the very first students of Thomas Leonard, who was considered to be the father of life coaching. So I was one of the very first life coaches trained in the world. I was a nurse by training before that. I studied EFT and the tapping with Gary Craig in his very first crop of students. So I was kind of this weirdo early adopter of everything, right? And my background has always been therapeutic. How do I use whatever tool I'm using to help people, right? And so I would say, quite frankly, I actually did think there was a lot of craziness in my beginning journey with human design. I mean, the first part of it was just like you, I'm a manifesting generator, but I was like, I don't wait for anything. What are you talking about? I just put my house on the market, moved across the country. This is not waiting, right? So I had to grapple with what in human design is called the deconditioning process, which is a process that I can't stress strongly enough that there is an enormous amount of wisdom of taking seven years and saying, okay, for the next seven years, I'm going to see what shows up because we all need to stop moving long enough to be and to figure out who we are before we move again. And I would certainly say in the beginning of my journey, I did not stop moving for a while. I still was pushing and initiating and running all over the place. And I would certainly say in the most respectful way, there just was a vibrational mismatch between what I envisioned doing with human design and what the organization I was part of, I think, wanted to do with human design. And part of it was just simply, I was the only person in the community who brought this therapeutic background to the table. Everybody else had a very different background. I think they were very comfortable with just taking human design as truth, even though there was a certain amount of experimentation in it. And I was really uncomfortable with it. I was uncomfortable with certain elements in the, the dogma of it. I was certainly uncomfortable with the rigidity of it. And really, quite frankly, 
I could see how getting a reading was great. I was doing that for a living. It was amazing, but it wasn't enough. It wasn't giving people a bridge between understanding who they are not and who they could grow into becoming. And I was fascinated with what's in that gap. How do we support people through that process that Ra used to call through shattering? When he trained people, he would train people to use human design as a tool to shatter people because they needed to be shattered so they could find their authentic self in the shards of their remains. That's really good for Ra's design. That's not my design. I'm not a shatterer. I'm a lover. I want to nurture everybody into growing into their potential. I don't want to shatter people. And so I was really, you know, struggling with not really liking the idea of shattering and really wanting to ask hard data-driven questions about how do we use this as a tool to help people have better lives, to help people get out of pain, to help people have better relationships, to help people become better parents, to get in sync with their money and their support. So all of that played into what was for me kind of an epic struggle for a lot of years with traditional human design. And eventually after, you know, some, some difficult conversations, I made the decision to step away from the traditional organization and go off and do my own training and do it, do it the way that felt right for me. That makes total sense. And that's a great segue because you and I and Asha, and I guess this is because no one really knows about this. So I guess I can say this. Myself and my co-author, Asha Ramakrishna, we are writing a book, Human Design for Liberation for BIPOC Individuals. So cat's out the bag. That's coming out. (laughs) (laughs) I haven't talked to anybody about that. Like maybe a few people, like a handful, but you have been really good at staying in your lane. And what I mean by that is minding your own business (laughs) when it comes Uh to the human design East Coast, West Coast, like battle of this source material, as people like to say, or pop HD. What are your thoughts? Because you had to make a decision about leaving the traditional human design, the kind of this is what it is. This is what Ross says. And then also evolving it. So what is your advice for people who are entering into the system and who see these very big divides? So I'm going to start first by prefacing this, because I think this is an extraordinarily important point that gets missed a lot. Human design is a revealed body of knowledge. And certainly the first thing that Ra used to say, and it's actually on the back of the original copy of the Black Book, which is one of his first books, that this system belongs to everyone, that when the information in this system was revealed, It was downloaded in the neutrino stream from Supernova 1987A, and we all got it at the same time. He's just the one that got it in consciousness. His job was to teach and speak it out, but it's in the cells of the rest of us who were standing around, you know, in in that time at the moment when, when all the information was disseminated through the neutrino stream. So that's point A. So it's hard to say that the system belongs to Ra because Ra himself said, no, it actually belongs to all of us. So that's the first thing. The second thing that I think is important to understand is that there are not very many people left who actually studied with Ra. And so the shadow side of that is it has kind of placed Ra in this sort of position of 
you know, this revered dead guy who basically would have really not wanted to have been because he would say constantly, don't take my word for it, go try it yourself. And that's kind of the irony, I think, and the challenge of human design. It's called the human design system, but it's a system that's designed to liberate you from systems. And so if you get too married to the idea of there's a system and then you get into the system and you find your own inner authority and sovereignty over yourself and you go, oh, screw the system, this system doesn't work for me. Are you actually out of alignment with the system or are you in alignment with the system? Because, you know, it's a problem. The third thing, and this is the thing that I think it's lost a lot in the translation. And, and I, I don't know why it got lost, but this was a really important part, part of the knowledge. And the knowledge, you know, Ross said the system and the way it was delivered to him was delivered with the intention of talking to conditioned people, that conditioned people live in a paradigm and that paradigm causes them to need to receive information in a way that doesn't destabilize their paradigm too much. They can't hear. So he, you know, this isn't what he called a mutative body of information. It changes people and people can't hear mutative information if it's so far in advance from where they are. They can't, they don't even grok it, right? So the entire system as it stands is actually intended to speak to conditioned people. It's about telling you not who you are, but actually who you're not. And what Ra used to say is that at a certain point in time, he was going to reveal what he would call the awakened I Ching, meaning a new way of talking about human design that would speak to you know, who you can become once you decondition. And so that part never even got completed. He died before he could do that part. And so the system itself and the revelation of the information, the system isn't even complete. The next thing that's important to understand, and this is, this is probably the part, and I'll be really frank with you. This is the part where I just pound my head on the desk repeatedly when I see this, because I see this everywhere. Human design is not a labeling system. You're not a this or a that. You don't have a this and therefore you don't have a that. It's a system that gives you a map that shows you how you interface with the quantum field and how you interface in relationships. And Ron used to say this, it's the DNA of your energy. Well, if you look at DNA across the human spectrum, we all have the same DNA. There's not like AC DNA and Karen DNA. I'm a this, I'm a that. The chart is, this is how I interface with the world. It's an active map of how you process energy. It's not a tool to label yourself. And I see people labeling themselves like, I'm a this type, therefore I can't do that. Well, that's not true. And Ra used to teach all the time, you can do anything by design as long as you enter into your relationship with it correctly. So it's not about being a this or a that. It's about understanding the way you interface with the world. And as such, it's an active tool. It's a dynamic tool. I love that. That is just so good because of course, as a projector, when I first entered into the system 10, 11 years ago, it was like, oh, projectors can't work. And I'm just like, I have to pay my bills. What do you, (laughs) that doesn't make any sense. (laughs) No, it doesn't. And that's, that's the thing that it's like, it bothers me that people don't think it makes sense. And so what we hear, like, even in the whole dialogue around projectors can't do blah, blah, blah. Right. What we fail to take into account is, well, why, why can't projectors do whatever, fill in the blank. And part of it is because 
before a projector can be invited into what's aligned and correct, they've got to do a couple of things. Number one, they got to stop moving because oftentimes they need to heal their bodies because they've pushed too hard in the wrong direction. And number two, oh my God, yes, <laughs> they have to heal their self worth. Because if they don't heal their self-worth, then they are not resting. They're not taking care of themselves because they don't value themselves enough to take care of themselves. They don't trust the process. They don't wait for the right invitation because they're so happy that somebody just saw them that they'll take any old invitation, even if it sucks, and then get themselves stuck in this, this hamster wheel of, well, I got recognized, so I'm going to go do this. And 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 it's just, it's like, it's completely missing the boat of what is this projector thing about, for example. And it's not just the projectors, it's all of it. So, you know, there's a big part of the core teaching, the source material, if you want to call it, that's just been completely ignored. And I find that really disturbing. And I really find it disturbing with the, the cult-like fanaticism that some people have about, I mean, I'm not trying to get negative and be mean about this, but how is it okay that you are working with a system that teaches each individual to drop into what feels good and right for them, that you then find a place inside yourself to judge other people for following their own inner authority, that that's like a huge disconnect. And to me, represents a massive misunderstanding of the source material. I wholeheartedly agree. And it's very challenging to when that does happen in the social media world, in the atmosphere, sometimes it's challenging to get behind a system that has helped me so much. And my next question for you would then be because human design is new and we've talked about this before about it going in its waves up and down. What do you think is the sticking point now for human design? Cause it does seem like it's sticking with the collective. Uh, yes. <laughs> it seems like it's sticking now. <laughs> you know, I think again, this, this is the day where I have multifaceted answers for you, AC. So first of all, I would say in a very simple answer, this will be my one simple answer for the day. You know, I think anxiety is fueling human design. People are afraid and they want a pill and they want to be like, I'm a this, therefore a that, and boom, done, finished. And I don't have to worry about anything else anymore. And that that's totally understandable. You know, they want to understand why is it not working and, and what's wrong with me. And there are answers in human design that can really, I think, liberate people, to use your word, and help them find some explanations for the things that haven't worked and, and really take that conversation away from I'm broken, stuck and blocked into, oh, well, I just haven't been accessing my energy correctly. And that's, that's a very soothing thing. I think I would say, and this is probably a little bit more of the shadow side of this, you know, raw taught I mean, he believed in this wholeheartedly, which was actually one of the biggest reasons why I left traditional human design. You know, Ra taught this doctrine of no choice that basically, you know, follow type and strategy and you're basically a puppet of the cosmos and you just kind of get put wherever you're supposed to be, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, I think that there is a certain amount of ease or soothing in the idea that, oh, I don't have a choice. I just am what I am. And I just give up and surrender and just go, uh-huh, uh-uh, and voila, poof, life just ends up being what it is. And I think to me, there's a real danger in that. And, and I think there's a danger. First of all, I would say science doesn't bear that out. And if you understand quantum physics, 
uh, and you look at some of the more evolved quantum physicists who are really doing a great job of drawing a line between consciousness, creativity, and consciously using the quantum field as a source of deliberate creation in the world. Dr. Amit Goswami is a good example of that. Or Nassim Harriman is another one who's a good example of that. You know, it, science, quantum physics doesn't bear out the doctrine of no choice. The, the thing about no choice is you don't have a choice if you're conditioned. If you're living from your ancestral trauma, if you haven't dealt with your own trauma, if you're still quagmired and you're a lack of value, your lack of lovability, you're letting fear run the show, you're not, you know, proclaiming sovereignty over your own narrative, then yeah, you don't actually have a choice. You're still living out your programming. But if you drop in and do the work and it's not easy as you, I know, you know, it's not easy. It means you got to throw it all out on the table. You got to, you you know, you start to see that, well, yeah, maybe you do have choice. Maybe there are ways, different ways that you can take back sovereignty over. Obviously, you know, we still have the third dimensional reality and it's pretty interestingly still dysfunctional. So I don't want to be like, just close your eyes, think positive, click your heels together three times and poof, racism. Love, love and light, oh, love and light. Gone, you know? right. So it's not that easy, but there are things you can do to control or at least have influence over your life. And you're not a victim of your life. And so I think that there are a lot of people who don't want to have choice because they don't want to lay it all out on the table because it's hard and it's scary. And sometimes it's painful. And it means sometimes you have to, you know, admit that you also made mistakes and that maybe you're not so great. And there's a lot of stuff involved in that. And, you know, I think the other thing we just have to look at and just bring it back last, last answer to science is, you know, I, Rod died before we really had this big revolution in understanding neuroplasticity and epigenetics. And I think science is really clearly showing us more and more and more that, you know, how we choose to show up creates our physical body, creates our states of wellness. It creates, you know, it allows us to change our brains and change our DNA literally. And he didn't know that. That wasn't around before Ra passed. And so I think Ra's job as a manifester, as cross of the clarion, is a five-fifth line. As somebody who had the 2551 defined, you know, and, and through the throat and, you know, 4323, you know, Ra's job was to wake us up, to initiate us, but to carry that torch in its old way, in its unevolved embodiment of a pedagogy that doesn't really fit. That's not really what design is about. Design is a living, breathing entity. And I would challenge anybody who knows design, sit with your chart. Don't even study it. Just sit with it and talk to it and ask it, what do you have for me? Because I think what I find and what I've seen this so many times now that as weird as this sounds, it's so universally true that that triangle will talk to you. It will show up in your dreams. It will show up in your meditation. It will reveal to you what you need to know about yourself. And it really is an initiating tool. And it really initiates you back onto your right path, that path that only you can fulfill, that you were born to fulfill, that irreplaceable, vital role in the cosmic plan that is yours to play out. 
And that triangle becomes this companion to help you figure out how do I do this in a way that allows me to fulfill my potential, that helps me tap into my support, that helps me you know, be respected and, and be honoring of who I am and also give the same back to others. And it's, it's, it's a soul curriculum. It's a living, breathing process. And it's not a, you're a this or a that. I love that. I'm just like listening. <laughs> like, yes, 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 yes. You're so right. And when you think about it being a soul curriculum, I think what happens in I love how you say, like, just sit with your chart because I think people always want to know now, what do I do next with this? All right. I sat with it. I see what it is. This is what it says and all of that stuff. What are some of your most practical ways of embodying the chart when you have sat with it, when you're doing the work, what do you think is biggest thing that people can take away to infuse it and embody it in their lives? I think that answers are going to be different depending on who is sitting, you know, who's the sitting with the chart. But I certainly would say universally, I find that what the chart brings to, to people is a path to loving yourself, a path to healing the karma of your self-worth so that you begin to recognize, and I like to think of it as a, you, you sort of move into the space where you remember and then proclaim, and ultimately, if you need to defend your value so that you're living from this place where you are aligned with that. I can't, it's so hard for me to explain this because it's such a visceral, visceral thing. You know, I really do feel sort of on a planetary level that the stories we're living on are threads that return to the infrastructure of the planet when we pass. And these threads create the matrix from which the world evolves and that our stories are vital and sacred and they build the template of the future. And we have an obligation. And I think this is really what human design reminds us is we have an obligation to do the best with the story we're given, to fulfill it, to love it, to honor it, to value it, to cherish it, to defend it, to to nurture it and then return it back to the earth when we're done so that the next cycle of humans coming through are putting their feet down on an earth that's carrying, you know, the, the fullest potential of the heart of humanity. I absolutely love that. I love that you said that. Now, I know it's not an either or, but I would love for you to just a little quick blip because my audience always loves instruct. They just love instructions. They love to know or just some insight. What do you think are the biggest blessings or blocks that each or type experiences in their life from your whole life of doing this? What do you think are the biggest blessings or blocks for each or type? I like that. Okay. So first type, the manifester, or we call them initiators in quantum human design, which is the language that I've used to rewrite human design. The initiators, their greatest challenge is kind of dual fold, three, maybe it's threefold. <laughs> so they're going to get a three, three for on this one. Number one is learning to trust their own inner authority enough to trust their inner impulses. Number two, learning to read anger correctly so that you start to see that anger is creative disruption and not problematic and that it's a symptom of not being aligned with your creative flow. And number three, learning to reclaim your power. 
So those would be, those are those three there. For the generator types, or we call them the alchemists in quantum human design, the, the biggest challenge for the alchemists is learning how to manage the learning process and to know how to interpret frustration and see it as a sign of momentum and, and sort of a signal that you're about to have a breakthrough and not quit too soon. That's, that's a big piece for the generator types. The manifesting generators have that piece for sure. They have also the same challenges as the manifestors. And I would say the, the biggest challenge for the manifesting generators is kind of funny. It's learning to love yourself even if you skip steps and you multitask because people judge you all the time for that and it's ridiculous. <laughs> so it's okay to skip steps and to do more than one thing at a time if you're a manifesting generator. For the projectors, oh, my projectors... If I could just get every projector to value themselves, if they could just heal that piece and realize that you're not an aberration or a mistake that God made, that you are absolutely here to engineer the future, that everything you know is actually true, that you understand the potential more than anybody else and understanding the potential that you're here to nurture and guide and, and take care of and protect is so, 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 so precious that you cannot waste your insights on people who aren't ready yet. So don't. Ooh. <laughs> A whole word. <laughs> and our reflectors, I love our reflectors so much. You know, I think for the reflector, the big challenge for the reflector is learning to be at home within yourself. Because I think the reflector has a unique challenge and that is, you know, they fall in love with everyone too just like the projectors, but in a very different way because they're not here to manage and guide. They're just here to be with. And so I always want to invite the, the reflectors to really learn to be at home within yourself and really defend your relationship with time because your relationship with time is very different than everybody else's. And that's okay. In fact, it's important. Oh, that was so good. Oh, that was so good. Now, this next question can be super loaded and I don't want to scare anyone <laughs> listening, number one. And I don't want, because I know you could talk about this forever. Mm -hmm. 2027 in the simplest, non-scary terms, because sometimes I will get emails from people like, hey, um, I've been, you know, on the rabbit hole and what's this thing about 2027? And I'll get a DM about it. <laughs> All of this stuff, right? All of the scary things in the most simplest supportive terms. What can you say about 2027? Everything is going to be okay. How's that? <laughs> that okay, that, that's good. Well, a little, a little bit more, just a teeny tiny bit more. Okay, so actually 2027 and the, the, the so Ra was given a, a prediction or a prophecy, as some people will say, with the human design material. And the prophecy says that in the year 2027, everything's going to change and a new species of human is going to emerge. And basically, in Ra's interpretation, we're all going to be living in compounds with guns, shooting each other up and fighting for sparse resources. It's going to be like Mad Max on crack, right? So anyway, my sacral in response to this material just went, uh, 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 you know, I just have known from the time that I got here since I was four that the world is going to be fine. We have a bumpy ride. We have choices about what kind of a ride we have, but ultimately the heart of humanity will prevail and it's quite beautiful. So Really, in the name of keeping it simple, what's happening is we're in a we're in a nexus point in an evolution. And that nexus point, because of the way evolution works, 
is disruptive. And basically what's happening is old paradigms that no longer fit the future of humanity are being forced to be revealed. The truths are being revealed and they're shaking and vibrating and they're coming apart. And it's very uncomfortable. Disruptive cycles are very uncomfortable and disruptive cycles do have a certain potential for for us to regulate how we're going to go through the cycles. We can choose to do it easy and beautifully and or we can choose to hold on and white knuckle it through and resist. And, you know, I think we're sort of in that resisting phase at the moment. So it feels really scary. But really what's happening is just conservatism is rearing its ugly head, saying that facetiously, because for evolution to happen, we have to have people who try to hold back. We have to have people who don't want change because it helps regulate how we evolve. If you throw it all out and start from scratch, even though sometimes that feels like, wouldn't that be a great way to do it? What that actually does is it violates certain core principles of quantum physics. And part of those principles are what you focus on is where you get growth. And you really want to look at what is working instead of what do we need to destroy and take apart. And so conservatism, and and especially when we have big pullbacks like we had with Roe v. Wade, and and I want to just say, as I'm saying this, I'm really talking about this in theory, uh, you know, from a philosophical theory, I am deeply aware that on a very personal level, there are people right now, women right now who are being hurt by this decision. So this is not, this, this, this is taking this out of the context of the realm of the personal. And I don't want to in any way deny there are people dying. There are people being hurt and that's very personal. And I think we cannot shut down our compassion and our pain in the face of other people's pain. So let's just, I don't want to be flippant about it. And sometimes we also for the sake of maintaining some kind of hope, we have to take a big enough step back to say, okay, what's really going on here? And part of what's happening is, you know, we're needing to evaluate how do we want to change and where do we want to grow and what is working and what isn't. And conservatism is a cry to hold on to the old. And what it's really doing is it's inviting us to look at, okay, well, what is working? There's not very much that is working. I think in my personal opinion, that's my opinion, But we do have to explore, well, what is working? Where in that sliver and that Venn diagram of change is there commonality and things that work? We're in a crisis point because we're learning a new way of creating. We've been creating out of fear. We've been creating out of lack. We've been creating from a place where we haven't been valuing ourselves and each other. And the definition of value has been measured on the material plane. We've been measuring it with numbers. We've been measuring it with with metrics that are not equitable or just. And that whole way of gauging value, which is completely artificial in the first place, is falling by the wayside. And it's causing us to say, okay, if we're not going to create out of fear anymore, we're now we need to start creating out of faith. What is that going to look like? How is that going to be? How are we going to start building the world from a place of alignment, frequency, and vibration? And that's that's really what's happening. It's just we're seeing the material world kind of panic and freak out a little bit along the way. And the quantum is is coming, it's emerging. And I really do think that what we'll see, if you look at the chart itself is changing. If you look at the way the chart is changing, what the chart says in its highest expression is that we are moving towards creating in such a way that we unify around common ideas that in that unity around those common ideas, we take action when the timing is right and aligned 
to create sustainable resources for the betterment of humanity. And that the driving force of that creative process is our faith in our own enoughness. And, you know, to me, that's profound. That's beautiful. A world where we're creating from a place of knowing that we are enough, knowing that we have enough. You know, I always take it back to the story of manna in the Old Testament or the Torah, if you're Jewish, you know, and in, in Torah, when the, when the people cross the Red Sea and they get to the desert, they whine a lot, okay? And I can say this because I'm Jewish. They whine a lot. And they spend like 40 years whining. And at a certain point, God says, okay, look, here's the deal. I'm going to take care of you. Every day, you're going to get this food stuff. It's going to fall out of the sky. It's called manna. You go gather it. Take what you need. Don't take more than you need because if you do, it's going to rot, if your neighbor can't gather for whatever reason, because they're not well or they don't feel good, then you can gather extra and give it to your neighbor. On the sixth day of every week, I'm going to give you double portions because I want you to take some time off and rest on the seventh day so that you're ready to get back to work, making this world a better place on Monday or Sunday, depending on what your perspective is. I think that's really where we're headed. That's, that's, a, that's a formula for enoughness. You know, when we live in our own enoughness and we trust in our own enoughness, we're not in competition with each other. There's no other. There's no less than. There's no you're this, I'm a that, therefore, and no weird metrics around I'm a better this than you. All of that goes away when we create from a place of enoughness. So really what's up for us is we're healing this enoughness piece and we're moving into a process of living from that enoughness, creating from that enoughness. And... We're already in it. It's not like it's going to happen in 2027. We've been in it for a good hundred years and we're going to be in it for probably about a hundred years afterwards. It's a cycle. It's a global cycle. It's not like poof, the light switch is going to come on. And now all of a sudden there's going to be this new race and we're going to be living in compounds with guns. That's not right. That's (laughs) not happening people. So relax. (laughs) Yeah. All going to be okay. I mean, I love that explanation. And I think that's where the back and forth comes from of people wanting to get into the system and like, oh, no, this is a cult. And, you know, this doesn't this is crazy talk and all of this stuff. But the basic principles or the parts of human design that bring it all together really explain how it works. And I know you as a Jewish woman have a very extensive background and study with the Kabbalah. And I love your thoughts around it, which something I did not know until talking to you is that you're technically not supposed to study the Kabbalah until after you are 40 years old. Um, (laughs) I did not know. And so when you think about the parts, because the parts get missed when we are in human design, some of the parts get missed. What do you advise others to do when they are looking at human design from this one lens, but there's, you know, it's the I Ching, it is astrology, it is the Kabbalah, it's metaphysics, it's all of that stuff. How do you recommend people to also not forget about that? You know, I would say human design is a course of study. And that means you have to take it apart before you put it together. You know, I will certainly say for me, I probably know more about the I Ching than I do about Kabbalah because I I'm still a student of the I Ching. Literally, you know, I read different versions of of I Ching books literally every day because 
I will cry when I talk about the I Ching because I have so much reverence for it because it blows me away that 2000 years ago, somebody got down and like codified all the aspects of the human personality and these core archetypes and said, here's this, 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 this. And the, you read these stories and you're like, whoa, that's still relevant today. People are still done, you know? Um, so I say, take the parts apart and study them. Take the chakras apart. And I don't, you know, and I'm not going to say I'm in any way any kind of knowledge. I mean, I'm not an expert on Hinduism at all, but, you know, this is a core part of an ancient wisdom teaching. And to bypass that wisdom teaching without saying, wait, what is this wisdom teaching? And how does this integrate with this other wisdom teaching? What's universal here and what's unique here? And how do we really honor that? I, I think if we don't do that, we're missing the real wisdom that the chart has to offer. I teach that it's a blend of ancient and modern archetypes. And if you don't understand the base, the base archetypes, where they come from and the history of them, you're going to understand the archetype through the lens of human design. You'll be like, this is a gate six. It means blah, blah, blah. But if you don't know the story of the sixth hexagram from the I Ching and the shadow and the other parts, because you just learned, you know, human design from a book somewhere, or, you know, you're, you're not going to get the richness and the depth of what it really is here to teach you. I love that. That was so good. My final question for you is where would you love human design to be in the next one to five years? I would have a long list on that one, but I'll, I'll keep it short and I'll talk fast. So number one, I would really like to see more people put out books about how you actually look at your chart that's not technical and professional, because I do think that's something that's really missing in the marketplace. There's a lot of good technical books, but there's not like, here's how you look at your chart. Here's the takeaway for you. Here's how you're, look at this. This is a beautiful mirror. You're beautiful. Look at this, you know, take this in and integrate it on a cellular level. That's number one. Number two, and this is probably a big piece for me. I would really love to see every single parent get their child's chart. Oh my gosh. It, <laughs> when I tell you, I always, I tell people all the time, if my parents had this information, you probably wouldn't be talking to me. Not because I wouldn't be doing this work, but I would have been so, I don't want to even say so far along because everything is in alignment and happens for a reason, but I would just be, a different person if my parents would have got this information when I was like 10 or even 10, 12, 15, it would have just changed my life, but continue. Yeah, no. And I think, and then hand in hand with that, every teacher would have it so that yes, every, every school, the schools will be set up to invest support. Oh my gosh. Imagine going to a school that knew your aura type and how you functioned and could look at your chart. Oh, right. Right. Totally. So that that's part two. That's my second list. And my third thing on my list is just this is my passion. This is this is what I just have such huge feels about. We have to use this tool to heal our self-worth. We have to stop devaluing ourselves and each other, period, the end. And I would like to see at the end of three years that we have a massive explosion in people who have really remembered who they are, why they're here and the value of why they're here. Because I really do think 
we all can get into that place or we can reach a critical mass of that place. The whole dialogue, the whole way we build the world, everything will shift. And that's the world I'm looking forward to continuing to build. And that's not a really like down to earth, you know, human design goal per se, but I don't even care if people use human design. Honestly, I don't care if they walk on the beach, hopping on one foot with a finger up their nose, if that's what they need to do to get there, let's get there because we deserve so much better. All of us. Thank you so much, Karen. This has been such a pleasure and I'm just so excited for everybody to hear this. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I'll put where you can find Karen and all her books and you probably have her first book in the show notes. And I just thank you so much for being who you are. Thank you for having me, AC. I wish we could have conversations like this every week. I know, (laughs) right? So I, I just thank you and thank you for the forum and thank you for the great questions and thank you all of you for listening. And don't forget, you're incredibly valuable and precious. Period. The end. Yes. Once again, thank you to our sponsor, The School of Betty. Check them out at theschoolofbetty.com. Thank you for listening to another episode of Is My Aura On Straight? This podcast was edited by Adam Ross. If you loved this episode, please make sure you subscribe and leave a comment. We'd love to hear from you. Also, make sure you're following me on Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. Until next time, bye-bye.